Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with the cost of living in British Columbia and in Canada. Inflation still on the rise. Interest rates going up too. This is putting the squeeze on a lot of people, especially senior citizens. You are a senior on a fixed income. Maybe you don't have a lot of retirement savings. Man, this is a tough situation. Some seniors choosing to keep on working. Forget about retirement. They can't afford to retire. They have to keep working. Got Bill Van Gorder standing by to discuss. First, let's have a listen to this here now. This is Peggy Prendergast. 90 years old, she is still working as an art instructor, and now she's thinking of taking on a second job. Have a listen. Now I'm really struggling because my pension is still, I still get the same dollars. It's very scary. I don't want to sell my house. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Bill Van Gorder. Bill is with the Canadian Association of retired persons. Very pleased to welcome him. Hey, Bill, thanks a lot for coming on today. Thank you, Mike. Happy to be here. Okay, I really feel for Peggy there and all other seniors who are still working. Maybe they're thinking of going back to work because they can't make ends meet. Bill, how big of a problem is this for seniors in Canada right now? It's a huge problem. At CARP, we're hearing more and more about it. In fact, when we ask uh, our members across the country, and we've got 330,000 of them, we get a, we get a response. They say, although everybody's concerned about health care, their number one concern is financial security, and will they outlive their money? Okay, what for, can, for Canadian seniors who are on a fixed income, let's talk about inflation and interest rates. How, how is that impacting them, Bill? What kind of stories are you hearing? Well, we're hearing, uh, much like uh, Peggy, that you just uh, heard from. Uh, many have been retired for some time. They're on fixed incomes. Everything else has gone up, but their income, unlike uh, government workers and, and uh, some others, they are not indexed so that uh, their income does not go up. And if they've tried to retire and live only on, on government pensions, at the most, the OAS and the CPP are only going to give them 2000 a month approximately, uh, uh, you know, 24 a, a year. And uh, who can live on that these days? In fact, according to Stats Canada, that's below the, the poverty line. So it's a huge uh, issue, as, and that's why so many uh, uh, seniors are saying they're just not going to be able to retire. They're going to have to work till they drop. Oh, man, that is brutal. Can you imagine it that? Is, retire? It, Go well, ahead. It, yeah. is, it is brutal, and and yeah. they uh, and they have no and and they have no way out because uh, uh, jobs, uh, you know, are not. Even though we hear there's a lot of jobs going in the in the workforce, uh, uh, for uh, in many cases, businesses are still for some reason hesitant about hiring older workers. They shouldn't be, but they yeah. uh, they are. So it's difficult for them to even get jobs, and then to get a job you enjoy. Imagine working all those years and then wanting to to uh, even if you're going to work do something you you're going to enjoy and you don't enjoy what you're doing it's a terrible uh, life to leave for the people who have served uh, Canada for so long here's one of the problems too that I hear about a lot Bill and I'm sure you do for sure and that is the jobs that are available for seniors so let's say you have a senior citizens and man this inflation these interest rates, I, I am struggling. I have to go back to work here. I can't afford to retire. What kind of jobs are available out there? Because I know a lot of seniors who are working, they're basically working in minimum wage jobs. 
Yeah, that's you know that's the other problem is is that the jobs that are available often for them are uh, minimum wage, and by the time you look at the taxes and clawbacks on other government support they get, uh, they're no further uh, they're no further ahead. They have to uh, you know we I was talking to an older Canadian the other day who uh, who had to work two jobs so he would make more than the two thousand a month that he would have gotten from CPP and OAS just to say ahead of the game and he wasn't you know the sad thing he wasn't enjoying either of the jobs they were just drudgery work and and he was uh, well into his 70s yeah how about for canadians who have reached retirement age that dream of retiring and then they get to the, that situation and guess what canada pension plan is not really enough for them and maybe they don't have a lot of a lot of savings, like some of the surveys that have come out recently about the number of people who basically have less than $5,000 saved up, yes. even though they're nearing retirement age. This is, this is surprising. Like, do you think seniors, people, people, maybe this is a message, wake up call for younger people. You should well, think about your, is, your retirement you know. years. Yeah, you've got to start early or savings, but that's so difficult to do because they, the rise in the cost of living, the increase in interest rates, the increase in mortgage, that's hit all age groups. So the young people, I talked to a young person the other day who said, you know, we looked at, over this really carefully and we had to decide whether or not we would put more money into an RRSP or we would uh, put things into things like education fund for our, for our children and uh, mortgage money. And we just don't have enough money to to make the choice so it's a it's a huge problem forty uh, percent uh, was the the number we heard of people who have five thousand dollars or less in savings that yeah. are nearing nearing retirement there's nothing you can do with that and unfortunately people sometimes often figure this out while it's too late to do anything uh, about it because if you wait for the last ten years to try to put away money for your retirement you're hardly going to have enough time. Yeah, speaking to Bill Van Gorder, Canadian Association of Retired Persons. Bill, you guys do a great job there advocating for seniors in Canada, retired Canadians. What would you like to see done there? I mean, do you think there's there's an opportunity for some more assistance for seniors who are struggling in this economy right now? Well, there certainly are. In fact, I'm going to be meeting with government officials this afternoon to talk exactly about that uh, uh, federally. And there's a number of things we want them to do. One, number one is, you know, you still have, if you have some retirement savings, they make you cash them in when you're 71 years of age, which is uh, ridiculous. Uh, if you've got a little money and can, and can uh, continue to live now, why would you cash in the retirement savings now and often at lower uh, and then put them into something that's lower interest rate, also taxable. So that's one thing they've got to do: get rid of that uh, uh, that uh, need to to cash in your RSPs at the age of seventy one. The second thing is they've got to raise the uh, uh, the CPP. You know, they did raise it for people over seventy five by a whole ten percent uh, a couple of years ago. But the people between sixty five and seventy five, who are the ones who have the biggest problem, often uh, their their amount wasn't uh, wasn't raised. Uh, at all, and the other thing they have to do is uh, look at the whole employment uh, uh, program, working uh, program, and make sure that uh, uh, businesses are encouraged to uh, hire people at reasonable uh, rates, and that probably means raising the uh, uh, the minimum wage in all the provinces right across the country. Do you think, hey Bill, do you think there's a little bit of ageism that goes on out there too? Like a lot of seniors, they've had long careers, they've got a lot of those those skill sets they've been they've built up over long careers i mean they'd be valuable workers but do you think there's a little discrimination against older workers sometimes too Oh, absolutely there is, because uh, what happens is they're, they, if they've worked a long time, they're making, uh, uh, they're making reasonable uh, salaries, and companies say, well, if I let them go and hire somebody younger, I can and pay less. And what we need companies to do is be more creative. Often those same people would like a few more uh, weeks off and holidays every year, so why not hire them back on contract where, they, where it saves money for the company itself, and the individual then has the opportunity 
opportunity under the agreement uh, to take more holidays during the year, which would which would help the company uh, even more. There are, you know, that's just an example. There are good ways of working this out both to the benefit of both the employer and the employee. Uh, but the em- employers have to recognize this and realize that the that the uh, the opportunity you have for continual work for corporate uh, uh, memory for mentoring young people is phenomenal in these older workers that they end up uh, forcing to retire at the age 65. Bill, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. Anytime, Mike. Either help. Let's talk booze prices in BC now. Got some of the highest liquor prices in North America here. Everybody knows you've got sky high prices for liquor, beer, wine. Now you take a look next door in Alberta, where they have some of the lowest liquor prices in Canada. <laughs> Guess what's going on now? Yeah, there's smuggling going on. There's liquor flowing across the BC-Alberta border. Also, online purchasing. So British Columbians buying their booze online, having it delivered, and they save big bucks. Even with the delivery charges, you're saving money because there's such a huge price difference between BC and Alberta. Got Jeff Guinard standing by to discuss. First, let's have a listen to this report from Global News. You're going to hear from Daryl Lamb here, Legacy Liquor Stores. Also, Global News reporter Richard Zussman here. Let's listen. This is the Lafroy Quartercast, one of my favorite whiskeys in the world. This is about $110 in British Columbia. Right now online in Alberta, you can buy it for $72. Instead of purchasing high-end liquor and wine from BC shelves, customers are having products sent directly to their BC doorstep from Alberta. If you start getting foreign products out of Alberta cheaper than local products, you're going to see the market start to flip uh, and move back to places like Napa and Bordeaux and Burgundy rather than, uh, you know, a Soyuz, Caramias and Kamloops. Okay, this is a big problem here. This is a lot of money on the line here, including tax revenue that would normally be flowing to the B.C. government. Did you hear the price difference there? He's talking about that bottle of scotch. $110 $110 in BC and in Alberta at $72? That is a huge difference. Let's check in with Jeff Guinard now. Jeff is executive director, Able BC. Uh, they are the voice of BC's bars, pubs, and private liquor stores. Hey, Jeff, thanks for coming on today. That's well, my pleasure, Mike. Okay, Jeff, an important thing to know here is that we're talking about retail prices in Alberta that are actually yeah. cheaper than even your wholesale prices. Is that correct here in, in our province? Yeah, it, it, not in all cases, but in, in some cases. I mean, we, we've known for a long time that British Columbia has had one of the highest taxes and markups on, on alcohol anywhere in North America. Uh, but what's happening recently is you know, we're not just seeing it in the price points you're talking about. We're also seeing our really high-end customers, the, the kind of people who come in and want to buy a $1,000 bottle of exclusive scotch. That is now hundreds of dollars cheaper uh, in places like Alberta. So the challenge for us is we can't even, as retailers, purchase it for the cost that a consumer walking into a store in Alberta can purchase it. And, you know, you look at the example you're using of that $110 bottle of whiskey, even if you put in 20 or $30 of shipping costs to put it into Canada Post and send it across the border, it's still cheaper than we can retail it for here. So <laughs> something is fundamentally broken in this system and we need to address it. Oh, yeah, that is a big problem. Uh, how big is this, do you think? Like, this, are we talking millions of dollars here? Yeah, I think so. The the yeah. challenge with quantifying it, of course, is, you know, no, no one, you know, ordering online has any obligation to report their sales, right? And But we're noticing it in the decline of sales in certain categories, particularly, you know, re, you know premium products and, you know, expensive whiskeys or expensive bottles of, of wines. Uh, and we're looking at the two components to that. Not only does, does the business that's struggling to recover from the pandemic still, not only do they lose out on some revenue from that, but this is millions of dollars to BC's treasury every year. And we've got a lot of urgent things that need that money from healthcare to climate change to forestry and roads, right? So it's it's a concern for all British Columbians, I would think. Okay, this is illegal, right? Like you are not, if I'm living in British Columbia, is it illegal for me to order booze online from Alberta and pay cheaper prices? 
Yeah, governments don't like when you do that. Uh, every province in Canada puts a fence around their borders and does alcohol policy a little differently, which is why you see, you know, full privatization in places like Alberta, where we have kind of mixed public-private here in BC. Um, and yeah, customers are not supposed to transport uh, alcohol across borders, but have to ask yourself for a second, does that rule even make sense necessarily, right? I mean, we're all Canadian citizens and you can move yeah. a lot of other goods past uh, the borders. What does that have to do with that? Now, I, and I know the provincial and federal governments have talked about this issue for a while, uh, and they're trying to come up with some some fixes to ensure that appropriate markups are being paid in appropriate jurisdictions. But at the end of the day, the same bottle is sold in different provinces in Canada for different prices. And that it's it doesn't matter if it's a little bit, but if you have a $110 bottle of scotch in BC that's sold for $75 in Alberta, and that's just regular shelf price, that's a problem that's not going to be fixed by telling people they're not supposed to do it. Why are those prices so dramatically different for the same products? Is it simply because BC charges higher taxes? Yep, entirely. If yeah, you think about yeah. it, a business is a business is a business in almost every jurisdiction in Canada. Their cost structures, while being a little bit different based on, you know, rent in Nelson, BC is probably cheaper than rent in downtown Vancouver. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's the markup system, like the they're kind of you know behind the scene alcohol taxes that governments put on them. So the liquor distribution branch, for example, has a markup system, and every bottle of of whiskey or scotch is marked up over a hundred percent just at the wholesale level, and that goes directly to government coffers. So it, it's challenging for us because we you know we're not making additional margin, we're not gouging consumers, we're we can't even buy it as cheaply as them. So you've actually got some hospitality customers who are asking, why can't, why can't I, as a, a licensee in British Columbia who's obliged to purchase from government, why can't I get the same prices that a retail customer can get in Alberta? Now, they're not allowed to purchase <laughs> from Alberta, but you can see where their brains are going. Well, yeah, and you can't blame them for asking that question. And we've talked about that mail order business for people who are ordering online and having products delivered to their home. What about mm-hmm. like that's a, that's technically illegal? Like if you are a, a own a bar, pub, or restaurant here in British Columbia, you definitely cannot buy this cheaper this cheaper product no. in Alberta and sell it. Right? That is no. totally illegal. Yeah, that what, that is. Yeah, you're only allowed to purchase directly from British Columbia producers or from the liquor distribution branch here in BC. And also, right. I, would, I would think that when you you know the although individual bottles you can get them cheaper. If you look at the economies of scale and the transportation cost and bringing over the volume we would need for a pub or a bar, or you know that then it it doesn't really make sense. No. Um, but our concern is. You know, it's it's not just the high end customers, but it's kind of mid range and high end customers. Anybody who's thinking about spending up, you know, one hundred and ten dollars a bottle of scotch is now thinking maybe I should spend seventy five dollars and spend well, ten yeah. twenty dollars on shipping instead, right? Like, so the the problem is it's not about you know slapping people on the wrist and and how would government even enforce that, right? But the problem is. The markup system, the way it structures, incentivizes people to look outside of our own borders and to not support BC businesses and BC industries. And I, I just don't think that's the right policy. Uh, and we need to find a way to address it. And it's complicated for sure. Uh, but one of the first steps is admitting we have a problem. Uh, and I yeah. think we need to sit down with the government of Alberta and uh, the government of British Columbia and try and come up with an equitable solution here. Is there a severe penalty? Like, let's say you run a high-end restaurant and you have a restaurant owner might be tempted to bring in a a cheaper case of wine or scotch from Alberta. Yeah. If you get caught yeah. doing that, is there a severe penalty for that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, anybody who might be thinking about that, I'd remind them that, you know, selling alcohol uh, in British Columbia is a privilege, right? It's a license mm-hmm. you apply for from the government. And there are a whole series of penalties. We have this whole schedule of penalties that if you you violate the, the terms and conditions of that license, and if you violate the contract you have with the province of British Columbia, they can do everything from fine you thousands of dollars to take away your license temporarily or permanently. So it's, it's not worth it for a BC business uh, to, yeah. to do something like that. It's, um, you know, and especially after, you know, if you remember our, our industry was on the front lines during the pandemic. We work in a highly regulated industry. We, we were cool following the rules. It's just really frustrating when sometimes the rules don't make any sense. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Speaking to Jeff Guinard, Executive Director, Able BC. Uh, they're the voice of bars, pubs, and private liquor stores in British Columbia. Let's listen to Peter Millobar here. He is the opposition critic on this file, BC United MLA, on the sky-high liquor prices in BC compared to Alberta. Let's listen. The Solicitor General... Uh, neither needs to start enforcing the laws of British Columbia 
or start uh, adapting uh, the pricing of, of uh, these uh, liquors so that we're not seeing that, that bleed off uh, to the Alberta. Okay. Well, he says you start enforcing the law or maybe adapt our prices here. Jeff, let's talk about the last part of that equation that you already mentioned, mm-hmm. that maybe they should start enforcing this. I, I don't know. This could be a difficult thing to enforce. But what about yeah. lowering What about lowering the taxes here? Yeah, that's something we've had discussions with about government. One of the, the challenges that I think we, we have or what we're up against there is, you know, you look at all the pubs and bars and liquor stores around the province, and they're all small businesses. But you add it together with our wineries and restaurant partners and breweries around the province. We are a $15 billion industry that contributes $1.5 billion of direct revenue to the province every single year. So that's a lot of money that the provincial government uses to fund their priorities and asking them to take less money uh, is, is a bit of a challenge, of course. But when you're looking at the disparity between those, it's not necessarily about um, you know, the money we're making in as it is about how we're marking it up and collecting it. So, for example, in, in Alberta, they have what's called a flat tax model. So. Um, the tax system is just kind of, it is what it is. You know what you're paying in every product. It's a simpler way of doing it. We've got a graduated formula, so it depends on how big the pack size is and different price points. So at the higher end, we end up charging more markup than we do on the lower price points of products. So there could be some rejigging of the formula to try and, um, you know, try and reduce the taxes and markups and some of those higher end products. Um, but I, I don't know. It's a complicated answer, to be honest, because there's, yeah. you know, the, you know, government is, is you know, needs these revenues, and we're we're not talking about, you know, if if someone can afford a thousand dollar bottle of scotch or something, I mean, it's you know, an extra hundred dollars in taxes is not going to be the end of the world. But mm. the concern for me and industry is we are watching our sales go to another jurisdiction. Uh, and you can imagine if you're an Albertan, you're crossing the border into British Columbia, uh, you're gonna choose to not purchase certain products here in BC because the price point, you're gonna maybe, if you're coming over the weekend, you might bring something with you. So we're losing sales here in BC and we're losing markup and revenue. So we can look at fixing it um, from the taxation perspective. Enforcement is, it's, it's difficult, right? Especially if it's yeah. you know, an Albertan purchasing in Alberta, they're doing everything they can legally, right? Um, but the, the markup difference is creating an economic incentive for people to skirt the rules, and, and that's the problem. Yeah, thank you for coming on with your thoughts today. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure, Mike. Have a great day. We want now to recognize and celebrate that today is National Indigenous Peoples Day in Canada when we recognize and celebrate the history, the heritage, the resilience and diversity of First Nations, Inuit and Métis peoples all across Canada. And we've got some great guests on to talk about this today, including Ellis Ross, BC United MLA, Friskina, Ellis is the former chief counselor of the Heisla First Nation, and he's one of the great indigenous leaders in our province. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Ellis, thank you very much for coming on today. No problem. Nice to be here again, Mike. Hey, Ellis, it's really great to have you on today on National Indigenous Peoples Day in Canada. Ellis, what does that mean to you? Like, what's on your mind today? What goes through your mind on this day? Well, you know, it's been an ever-changing thought process, uh, especially when I started this work back in 2003. It was actually a different dynamic back then. It was actually, we're just getting started to be heard. The the case law that had been decided in the courts was starting to be honoured by the governments of Canada and BC. And now I'm I'm witnessing something different. And that's, I think it's quite historic in terms of First Nations actually just responding to the issues around them and responded to projects being proposed to being to a point where First Nations are actually driving the economy. They're driving housing. They're driving energy projects. They're, they're at the, actually the forefront. And, and I, quite frankly, think governments don't know how to respond to this. They're so used to First Nations opposing everything. And yeah. so I think we're witnessing something, uh, something quite unique here, here in B.C., I think so too, and I know this is a great passion for you for prosperity for First Nations in our province. Let me just go back a little bit in, in your career, and let's talk a little bit about your your path, Ellison, in public life. And before you were, were became the chief counselor of the Heisla, what what kind of career were you doing? I remember you were were you uh, driving like a taxi boat at one point. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's right. I did that for 11 <laughs> years. I worked yeah. for DFO for three years. I ran a private company for myself. But really, it was trying to scratch out an existence here, trying to support a family. Because there was no economy in my my region. Everything was yeah. leaving town. Everything was shutting down. Uh, but it was, it was something. And you know, the thing about it was I, I didn't realize as a counselor and chief counselor and supporting all these different initiatives like LNG and mining forestry, I didn't realize the effect it would have on the greater population. And then I started to understand what the judges and what the courts meant by one big inclusive society that included First Nations. So that's, that's what we're seeing up here in Kitimat and Terrace right now. How did you get involved in, in public life? Like what was your path to become the chief counselor of the Heisla? How did that happen? Actually, I, I got nominated to be a counselor at first for eight years, and I thought, you know what, I'll, I'll leave my name in, I'll let it stand, and if I win, I'll take my council's vast resources and money and divert it to my basketball teams that I was really <laughs> passionate about, only to find out my council was broke. They had no money. <laughs> they, had, they had nothing. And so I, I started to slowly research the Indian Act. I started to research governance. I started to research what was happening to First Nations for the last 100 years. And I very painfully, I reached the conclusion that uh, the, the only solution for us as First Nations is getting involved with economic development. Yeah. And that's, that's, how I, that's how I got to this point. What was the reaction in the community when you became a, uh a counselor there for the Heisler First Nation and then the, the chief elect, the chief counselor. Were you, like from the very beginning, were you talking to your friends and colleagues about, look, we need economic diversity, we need development? Was that a, was that a message that, how did that go over? No, I, well, initially, when, when a LNG was brought to me and forestry was brought to me and mining was brought to me as a counselor, yeah. uh, I opposed it. I opposed all of them. Mm. And so... And, and that was just the status quo back then. Like, everybody opposed everything back then. But I slowly understood I was actually following the wrong narrative, listening to the wrong people. But by the time I became chief counselor and told them, that, look, I spent eight years doing this work already. I've researched everything. I think, you know, this is the path forward in terms of econ development. And that we got to start doing. Even that was kind of met with lukewarm uh, approaches. But it took a couple of years before people realized that, yeah, we could do this. We could become successful. And now our band is actually one of the most successful, most wealthy bands out there. And, and it, yeah. it shows in the people. It really shows in the people that really, for the first time, thought, yeah, I can get a job. I can get a house. I can get a mortgage. I can buy a truck. It's actually quite amazing. Why do you think there was that resistance at first? And you, you described there how you had to change a heart on this yourself. Why do you think there was, was there like suspicion toward these, toward government and these, and these energy companies at first? Well, the, the suspicion was, was well founded because oh. if, if you go back in the history, First Nations were very much ignored and treated very poorly by provincial governments, federal governments, corporations. And I, I've got a, I read it all in the archives. But like, like I tell everybody else when they, when they ask me about, you know, where does the change start? Where is it going to start? Well, it's got to start from your leadership. There's nothing government can do to help you. There's nothing corporations can do to help you. But you've got to be able to meet these, these organizations and institutions in the middle somehow. And if you do that with an open mind, you'll find you, you do have the same objectives. You do have the same wishes and desires. And if you can do it, everybody benefits, not just First Nations. But my process for that was probably a good three years starting in 2003 before I fully developed an idea to say, like, yeah, I know the path forward now, guys. And a lot of stuff I, I thought about, I wasn't quite sure if it would work, but I was so, I was so sure in the outcomes, I stuck to it. Mm-hmm. And that, that I, I've met a lot of adversity, opposition, a lot of anger, but that's all in the past now because everybody's enjoying the, the benefits of what we did over the last 10 years. Speaking to Ellis Ross, former chief counselor, Heisla First Nation, BC United MLA for Skeena. You mentioned that, you know, a lot of people were won over to economic development, liquefied natural gas development, and you, and it's led to a lot of good things for the Heisla and other First Nations in, in BC. But there is still a lot of, there's still division though, right? I mean, there's still opposition, right? 
Oh, there always will be. I mean, yeah. I mean, you you always have factions within every community. Uh, I was quite fortunate because I developed a communication plan with my membership all across BC to the point where our final LNG vote that happened with our entire membership, uh, we had 92% in favor of LNG. Wow. wow. And it was, it was all because we were open and transparent. We actually provided a lot of information, the good, the bad. And that, that opposition you find in communities, that 8%, 10%, It'll be there regardless of what you do. It doesn't matter. And that's, unfortunately, that's what these external groups prey on. They find that, that factional opposition to the chief and council or their regular leadership, and they blow that up into something bigger than what, what, what it should be. We're, we're speaking today on National Indigenous Peoples Day, and Ellis, you and I have talked before about the path forward for First Nations and Indigenous peoples in Canada. We've talked about the truth and reconciliation process, which I know you support. And would you say that, you know, jobs, economic development, all the stuff that you're so passionate about, is that, would you say that's like crucial to the reconciliation project and the path forward here? Oh, without a doubt, because that's mm-hmm. how I measure success in terms of truth and reconciliation or a relationship with the Crown. You know, if I couldn't get that uh, unemployed 25-year-old guy out of prison, or I couldn't get that single mom into a better future, then all this stuff is just talk. That's where I measure the results. And that, that's, you know, I stopped measuring that as chief counselor because the, the progress was just overwhelming. It was just a story after story about people coming in and saying, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going for a mortgage, you know, Never done it before. You know, I bought my kid an iPad. I'm, I'm going to Vancouver for vacation. And was just so I just, I just stopped monitoring all that. And, and the only the only sad thing about this is that I actually built that plan on the idea that two major LNG plants would be built in Kitimat. So I was thinking maybe 15 years of construction. Mm-hmm. And but right now Chevron left town. So when uh, the construction of LNG Canada is complete, all those construction jobs go away. And I was trying to build a plan for sustainable economic growth without the second facility, as well as trying to educate the people to tell them you got to dream bigger than construction. You got to dream bigger than labor. You got to go to school, become a doctor, a lawyer, a tradesperson. But that that is really hard to do within First Nation communities. Develop an educational plan. It's really hard to do. Hey, Ellis. Last question for you. While I have you here. Uh, You've had a lot of success in provincial politics. Now, I heard a rumor that the federal <laughs> conservatives had come knocking on your door here and saying, hey, hey, Ellis, why don't you come over here and run for us up here in Skeena for a federal office? Is that true? Well, the, 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 the issue with that is that 2017, when I decided to become a, a provincial MLA, I decided to run. The initial plan was to run for federal politics, hmm. and it was it was actually uh, we're, I was pursuing, you know, the idea of running for the Conservatives back in 2016, 2017. But it was uh, under the idea that said, look, both levels of government are failing in trying to get LNG off the ground here in BC. So which one is it? So provincial politics, the election came up first, and so that that rumor has never gone away. But yeah. Uh, I get a lot of uh, requests in terms of what to do next. And uh, my family is probably going to be a bigger part of that answer than more than I'm going to be. Okay. So you don't, you don't rule that out then you might run for the, you might run for federal MP under with the conservatives. Is that correct? I, I've never ruled out anything including it, but my wife is um, my wife and I actually have a conversation about that almost weekly. Oh, what, okay. What does she want you to do? Or can you say, well, (laughs) <laughs> she she'd like to see me at home more often. Okay. Right? Yeah, Which is yeah. impossible to do as a as a politician. Yeah. And uh but but I've always got the same goal in mind is is like how do we turn things around in BC? Yeah. Uh how do we because I I want to leave a strong province. I want to leave a strong country for my kids so they don't have to go through what I went through. And I I think we should if not BC then Canada. I I truly believe that we need a strong place in the in the global economy and the global politics and that's 
that's the mentality I took in as chief counselor. I said, if, if we're going to change it, it's got to come from us, guys. We can't depend on anybody else. And we proved it. We got a strong economy, strong people, strong communities. So I, I know it works. I know that formula works. Ellis, thank you for taking the time today. I appreciate it a lot. Not a problem. Thanks a lot. We continue to recognize and celebrate National Indigenous Peoples Day in Canada today. My guest is Chris Sankey. Chris is an Indigenous business leader, former elected councillor with Alaxqualam First Nation. And Chris is also a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. Very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me, Mike. Always a pleasure. I always appreciate your time here. Chris, I'm grateful to you for spending some time with us on, on this day. What is uh, National Indigenous Peoples Day? What does that mean to you? What's going through your mind today? Well, first, I'd, I'd like to acknowledge that uh, I'm currently on the traditional territory of the people of Treaty 7 region in the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. I'm currently in Calgary right now, Calgary, Alberta. Okay. It means a lot to you on land acknowledgments and just to be proud of who we are in this country, that you know, we're still here and we're looking to, to build the relationships with our neighbours so we can move our country forward together. Yeah, what do you think is the top priority on that? I know you're passionate about, like our previous guest, Ellis Ross, passionate about business development, getting, you know, jobs, jobs and prosperity for people. Your thoughts? Well, I think it's, you you think about the people in the communities. I mean, I think Ellis would agree that uh, it's about intergenerational wealth transfer, where we have an opportunity to not only be proud of who we are, which makes us stronger, but to look seven generations ahead so we could change the scope for the next generations to come uh, to be a part of Canada and not apart from Canada. Yeah, and do you think that when it comes to economic development and job job creation, how important is that, do you think, as part of the sort of path forward there? We're talking about truth and reconciliation in the future here to bring us all together. How important is that? Is getting people working? It's very important. I mean, it shows independence. You, you become role models for your kid, your children. Uh, you give back uh, to society, both in your workplace and volunteering. It just strengthens the overall economy. You know, when we have a, a massive uh, population of Indigenous people, you know, we're growing three times the national average. It's a benefactor to businesses. You know, we're a solution to the global energy opportunity and there's just so much that could happen by partnering with Indigenous communities to create jobs and prosperity for all. Yeah, and do you think that attitudes have changed over recent years? I mean, there there used to be, a, I guess, a perception that First Nations were like a barrier to resource development, or they'd oppose, you know, First Nations would just oppose big projects. That's changing, though, right? we got about a minute left here. Yeah, it's it's changed significantly. The landscape where we have a seat in the say, we have equity, we're getting land transfers back, we're buying up land, fee simple land. It's just all around good for the economy and good for the country. Yeah, and and um, what do you think is sort of the highest priority here right now for for you these I, days? I believe it, the opportunity to be an independent for uh, an energy opportunity to be a global player. Uh, I think now's the time Indigenous communities are coming together to be that resource sector um, giant on a world stage. You know, it's our time to take our place and to be good partners with our neighbours here in Canada. I really believe that. And I've always said together we're stronger and we're going to need each other as we need the capacity. That's awesome, Chris. Thank you for your time today. Thanks for spending some time with us on National Indigenous Peoples Day. I appreciate it a lot. Thank you so much. I really appreciate uh, you reaching out to me. The wedding season is here, pretty much in full swing. A June wedding is very popular. Of course, lots of couples want to get married in the summer months, too. So lots of happy couples out there. They're getting out that checklist. You've got the ring, the flowers... The photographer, the wedding dress, the tuxedo, and the prenup. Yes, prenuptial agreements, they are also gaining in popularity. 
family law offices reporting a rise in interest in prenuptial agreements. Got Stuart Zuckerman standing by to discuss. First, have a listen to uh, family lawyer here, Kevin Casper, weighing in on prenups. Listen to this. There is a lot of um, negative connotations that surround prenuptial agreements or marriage contracts or cohabitation agreements in the idea that it's preparing for the for um, some inevitable end to the relationship. But in fact, it can be very useful in protecting the parties from um, a protracted separation, litigation, these kinds of things. Yeah, and I can understand uh, there's some negative connotations there. I mean, some people might think that a prenup is uh, not very romantic, shall we say. Let's discuss now with Stuart Zuckerman. Stuart is with the family. He's a family law attorney with Zuckerman Law Group. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Stuart, thanks a lot for coming on today. Good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for doing it. It's really interesting to see these reports and studies that have come out recently about a rise in interest in in uh, prenuptial agreements, lots of people taking a look at this. Are you seeing that at your office? Absolutely. Uh, we see we definitely get calls every week, every two weeks for uh, for prenups, cohab agreements, marriage agreements. Believe it or not, uh, something that that I've seen that's surprising is I'm getting a lot of queries from the parents of the bride and groom, where you know the the groom's father or the bride's mother will call me and say that they want to protect their daughter or their son. Um, and uh, it's not uh, a situation where they say, you know, I don't trust or I don't like their intended spouse. It's just that a, a lot of the, it's about intergenerational wealth transfer. So, you know, yeah. the mother or the father want to, they want to gift money uh, to their child, but they, they know there's approximately 40% divorce rate or more. And so they say, okay, if I'm going to gift a hundred, 200,000 to my son or my daughter, I want to make sure that comes back to him or her if they separate five years from now or three years from now or whatever. So um, that, that's a very, I'm, I have a big one right now that I'm working on where it started with the father calling me and he has significant assets and, and he's, he's gifting, intending to gift monies to each of his children. And he wants to make sure that every one of his children have a, a prenup or a cohab agreement uh, before they, uh, you know, um, get into a situation where, that inheritance may be lost once it's uh, once it's given to them. Uh, wow. Under the law in BC, in the absence of an agreement, an inheritance, even though it's excluded from division, what you receive as an inheritance, the growth in that inheritance is not excluded. Um, so, you know, if it increases in value over the course of the relationship, that's still split fifty-fifty. Plus, if the if the if the the husband or the wife who receives the inheritance takes that inheritance money and puts it into a house that's in the party's joint joint names or uses it to pay off a joint debt like a mortgage or uses it to buy cars or to buy you know toys once it's used for a family purpose and converted into a joint asset it loses its exclusion so those things you know inheritances can be wiped out in terms of keeping it to one side once it's spent or applied for for some family purpose Wow. Okay. That's some really interesting information there, Stuart. And that's also intriguing that you are getting these inquiries from from parents here. How do you handle that now? Let's say if you have a father who phones you and says, look, you know, my daughter's getting married. What I'd like her to get a prenup. What do you advise them to do? Well, uh, you know, I, I, I have to explain to them that, you know, if I'm, there's two ways that that can go. That the parent can hire me to draft an agreement based on what they tell me, and then they can present that agreement to the two intended spouses and get each of them to get their own lawyers and negotiate it. But the more appropriate way would be for the son or the daughter to actually then call me, retain me, um, so that I'm retained by the actual, by one of the two parties. Um, and, you know, I say, okay, the part of the goal here is to protect any future inheritance from your parents, but but we can do, we can customize and arrange that agreement to deal with any issues that you or your intended spouse have about your own current issues, ignoring whatever it is that your parents want. What, like, what are your concerns? What is it that you want to um, pr- preserve from division in the future? And there are people who who want to keep, you know, if, if I come up with something uh, 
Uh, I want it to be mine. I don't want to share it. And there are other people who want to make sure that uh, uh, expenses of the home are shared in, in certain, maybe in proportion to the party's income. They don't want to be 100% responsible for all the bills or things of that nature. So, um, or they want to, they have a concern about if I separate, I don't want to have to pay spousal support um, to my spouse because she's independent now and I'm, you know, she's not dependent on me financially. And I don't want to say, okay, 10 years from now, all of a sudden I got to pay her. 5,000 bucks a month in alimony uh, just because we were together 10 years. So there's all kinds of issues that people come up with. Um, and, you know, my advice is always uh, that before you spend money on a lawyer drafting up an agreement and then kind of present it to your wife and have her choke and <laughs> be shocked looking at, at what, what you put together, you, yeah. you need to, these are conversations you need to have between you and your spouse you know, before you get to the stage of drafting the agreement and talk about what you each think is fair. And, you know, ideally, these are conversations you have before you get to the two-year mark, because once you are together two years in BC, your common law spouses, um, and it's only uh, one year if you have a child together, but, but, oh. um, but if you don't have a child, it's two years together, you're now common law spouses, and now the law applies to you as it would to any married couple. Everything, everything you brought into the relationship is yours, that equity is yours, in your RRSPs, in your vehicles, in your real property, but the growth, any growth in any of that from the date you cohabit forward. So if property values go up, if your RRSP goes up, if your Bitcoin goes up or your stocks go up, that increase from the date of cohabitation until the date that you divide it upon separation is all 50-50. Yeah. Um, that's, that's the presumption, unless you have an agreement that says otherwise. Yeah. Okay. This is all critical information here, especially that, that two year mark. And when you're talking about like a common law, so you don't even have to have a piece of paper that says you're married. If you, what, if you've cohabitated for two years, that's when it becomes legal, basically. That, that, that's it. That's when you yeah. become just like married couple. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay. What about, okay. There's a prenuptial agreement. What about a, what about a postnup? Like what if you get married? Can you, can you get into a prenup agreement after you've been married? You can. Um, so people do, that would then be called a marriage agreement rather than a prenup. Okay. Um, although usually in prenups, we have a term that says this prenup agreement continues and becomes a marriage agreement if the party's married. Um, if they marry in the future, this becomes their marriage agreement. But but yeah, you can do an agreement after you marry. It's just, it's it's more difficult, obviously, after you marry any leverage that you had, if you had assets, you know, if you had inheritances or assets pre-marriage um, that you wanted to protect and then you marry, and then, for example, you use the inheritance to buy a house. Well, now it's lost its inheritance nature. Um, and if the house is in joint names, there's a presumption she's got that 50-50 claim on it. Um, and, you know, if you start negotiating and say, okay, I want an agreement that says if we ever separate, I get my 200000 inheritance back, and she goes to a lawyer and says, you know, don't agree to that. You've already put it in joint names. He's lost that exclusion. So, um, you know, now it's, it's less likely that somebody will want to agree to give up something that they've now acquired an interest in. All right, we're talking about prenups and prenuptial agreements. My guest, Stuart Zuckerman, Zuckerman Law Group. Call him right now if you want. Star 9898 on your cell is the number. Uh, let's go to Dale on the line in Kamloops. Hi, Dale, go ahead. Hi, how's it going? It's going good, go ahead. Um, my question is, I took a law course a long time ago, and I remember somebody saying that you can't, sign away your legal rights. So I'm curious if I had a prenup that said, okay, I will take nothing out of the marriage and been together five years, let's say, um, the law would say I get half, I get half of the property. Will a prenup override what the Family Relations Act might say? Okay. That's a really good question, Stuart. So, um, sometimes a little information, um, uh, can be dangerous. Um, uh, it, it, it's, it's not correct to say that you can't um, give up your legal rights. It is true to say you can't give up a child or your child's legal rights. So if parties enter a, a prenup or a postnup and they, they have a child and they say, okay, I'm going to waive child support or I, I'm going you know, to give up any claims to child support, um, uh, that cannot be enforced because it's the right of the child and the child is not part of the agreement. They're not signing the agreement. It's just between the, the two parents. So mm-hmm. other than child support, um, uh, and even things like uh, people sometimes in advance say, oh, if we separate, I'm going to get sole care of our child. And that likewise is something that won't be um, 
the court will not be bound by that because the court is focused on the best interest of the child. But other than to deal with children, uh, the rights of the spouses can be waived or released. So you can waive and release spousal support. You can waive and release property division. The risk that you face is there is a section of the Family Law Act that says that if an agreement is significantly unfair, um, then the court can vary the terms of the agreement. Uh, with respect to the division of assets. Um, so you have to make sure that that, that there's reasoning behind um, or rationale behind the uh, the waivers and the releases that are, are being done. But generally speaking, our courts have said if as long as both sides had the independent legal advice and were advised as to all of their rights under the Act, and then they, uh, it, after obtaining all that information, they proceed to execute an agreement in the presence of lawyers without any coercion or undue influence by the other party, then they are able to be held up to uh, what they've agreed to under that agreement, unless the court finds it was significantly unfair, which is a high burden to meet. Okay, that's very, very interesting. Is Is a prenup agreement expensive like if people are thinking well maybe we should do this like is it, is it cost a lot of money to to enter into one of these in terms of like legal fees well nowhere near compared to what you'd spend on litigation so we yeah. typically charge for for a for a relatively straightforward uh prenup or cohab agreement or marriage agreement or a separation agreement for that matter where we're, where we're not involved in the negotiating we're just taking the instructions drafting the agreement, meeting with the client, explaining the agreement to our, our side, witnessing their signature on the agreement, and then sending it out for the other side to get independent advice and sign it. We would charge about $4,500 for that service, and the other side would probably only pay about $500 for an hour, an hour and a half of a lawyer's time to review the agreement with them and witness their execution of it. Um, okay. So it's the drafting the drafting that's the, that's the most complex. But just compare that, Mike, to I just finished a trial um, uh, in April, just got the decision last week, um, and uh, it was a three-week trial, and each side spent over $300,000 oh. each in legal fees on that three-week trial uh, to come out with an outcome. We, we succeeded in 95% of what we asked for, and the 5% that we lost was only worth about $50,000 out of $7 million. So, um, uh, so you know, it was obviously worth it in the end for my client to litigate. But if they had an agreement, um, that may have prevented them from going to court in the first place because, you know, it's difficult to set those agreements aside. So it may have re- prevented any actual litigation. Yeah, would you say, like in a case like that, obviously it sounds like there's a ton of money on the line. Is there, Are those the people who typically would look to, are interested in a prenup or need a prenuptial agreement if they're they're wealthy and they've got, they've got there's a lot of money at stake? Or, or is it, or are people with less wealth looking at them too? Um, well, I, I definitely have clients who have less wealth that are looking at them. But if, if there is wealth in the family or if you know you're going to receive an inheritance or some gifts, during your lifetime from your parents, then there's a much greater need for, for, you know, if you start out and you're not wealthy, but you know your parents have money that they're going to gift to you or help you buy a house down the road, and you want to preserve that so that if there's a separation, you get that share back, then the only way to do that is with an agreement. Because if, the, if there's no agreement, you know, if that money gets mixed into the, the family assets, you're, you're not going to succeed in, in getting it back in, in all likelihood. Do you ever have anyone in your office? We just have a minute left here, Zuckerman. Uh, uh, do you talk about? Um, would you say that sometimes one party in a marriage is maybe got cold feet on a on a prenup? Do you ever have a situation like that where one party is like, oh, "I don't want to do this"? I, I've just had a situation in the last two months where the 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 husband or boyfriend they weren't married yet came to us. They were he was just at the two year mark, um, had just passed had just passed the two year mark and wanted an agreement because he had a business. So we, and we took his instructions and we drafted the agreement when he went to his intended to, uh, to talk to her about the agreement. It ended up causing the relationship to break up. And now there's <laughs> litigation. She's suing him um, because they've been together more than two years and she's making claims against him for, in relation to his business and, and in relation to the home that he bought uh, that they live in. So, um, you, you know, it turned out to into a disaster yeah. as a result of uh, presenting that agreement. But, oh dear! Uh, you know, better, better to deal with that disaster early on. I mean, one of the the, up, the upsides of the of having these discussions or presenting these agreements is you learn very quickly what someone is interested in. Um, <laughs> you know, beyond your companionship and and the reasonableness okay. of them. So, 
Stuart, it's always great to have you on here. Thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about the big shakeups here in the Canadian airlines industry now. The big news this week, WestJet announcing they will shut down Sunwing Airlines. Very popular carrier for Canadians going on vacation to sunny destinations. Flown on Sunwing a few times myself. Yeah, WestJet announcing they will shut down Sunwing, is this a good thing or a bad thing for consumers? Got Duncan D standing by to discuss. First, have a listen to to this. Here's John Graddick, McGill University. He studies this sector. You'll also hear uh, Global News reporter Sean O'Shea here. Let's listen. There is going to be less choice. Uh, the question is going to be, you know, which markets does WestJet decide to reduce services on? The Canadian airline market is dominated by Air Canada and WestJet. Earlier this month, WestJet announced plans to shutter its discount Swoop brand. And with the Sunwing name disappearing, that really leaves just Porter, Air Transat, and ultra-low-cost carriers Flair and Lynx. You're not going to have three flights from the three carriers going from Toronto to Puerto Vallarta or Toronto to Montego Bay on a Saturday morning in January. You're going to have one, maybe two. Yeah, some consumer advocates are a little worried about some of this consolidation going on. Let's discuss with my guest now, Duncan D., former chief operating officer at Air Canada. And I'm always grateful for his time. Duncan, thank you for coming on today. Mike. Thanks for doing it. So some big news here by by WestJet. This uh, Sunwing announcement is the latest one here, as you heard. But earlier, they had also announced that Swoop, that economy Swoop brand, would also be shuttered as well. Duncan, is this, any of this surprise you? Mike, it doesn't actually surprise me. What surprised me was when the federal government um, approved WestJet's desire or WestJet's plan to buy Sunwing in the first place. Um, so that was really what uh, caused uh, this entire domino um, to get started. So now that the WestJet owns the Sunwing brand, um, they've decided to shutter that brand and incorporate those aircraft into its main fleet, which really doesn't surprise me one bit. You don't buy an airline uh, to keep it operating independently. You buy an airline to integrate it into your main operation, which is exactly what it's doing. Okay. Do you, were you, you mentioned that you were surprised that the, the federal government approved this deal, right? I mean, we have got... Uh, we got regulators in the country that look at this kind of stuff. Did, did, the, did the government approve this over the objections of any of these uh, regulators? No. I mean, you know, effectively what the regulators looked at was uh, whether there would be a substantial lessening of competition as a result of this acquisition. They concluded that uh, there would not be, and uh, the federal government attached some conditions to the acquisition. But at the end of the day, they looked at it and basically said, sure, let's just go ahead and allow uh, WestJet to acquire um, uh, Sunwing, which, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, Sunwing's market was the southern sun destinations, as you mentioned in the introduction, right. Mike, and WestJet is more of a domestic carrier with a little bit of a vacation arm. Um, and so this was not something that they saw as a big overlap in terms of consolidation. Can you talk a little bit about sort of the business calculus that goes on here with a, a decision like this? I mean, you're a former Air Canada executive. I'm just wondering, like Sunwing was a pretty well-known brand in Canada for yeah. people looking to go away on a vacation. Why would they why would they want to shut that down? Look, I think there's a couple of things going on here, Mike, and uh, you're absolutely right. Sunwing is a pretty well-known brand. Unfortunately, the last little while, it's been well-known for all the wrong reasons. Yeah. Uh, if you remember last Christmas, um, there were literally tens of thousands of Sunwing customers stranded at airports throughout the Caribbean, Mexico, and uh, places like Cuba sleeping on the floors of airports and um, hotels because Sunwing just screwed up so badly in terms of the uh, service that they were providing to their customers. If you remember, there were just so many uh, customers who were swearing that they would never buy Sunwing tickets again. And so I think what WestJet is making a calculation uh, of at this time is that this, the, the equity in the Sunwing brand was very, very low. In order for them to rebuild that equity, to somehow get uh, many of the travelers, travel agents, people who sell packaged holidays to go back to Sunwing would likely cost hundreds of thousands, if not millions of 
dollars to re-promote their brand among these these uh, uh, consumers. And they're saying, well, look, I mean, we've got a WestJet brand that, you know, relatively speaking, is not as badly bruised as Sunwing. And so, you know, let's put all our eggs into the WestJet brand and we're still able to capture that market. So, you know, yes, Sunwing was an important carrier primarily to secondary markets uh, into sun destinations. But when you've got a brand that was so badly bruised and you've got a brand new owner, their decision becomes, do we sink millions into trying to rehabilitate that brand among the flying Mm. public who, you know, would have to be the ones buying the tickets? Right. Was the same sort of strategic thinking, did that go into the decision around Swoop as well? I remember when Swoop Airlines started up and they billed themselves as an ultra low cost air carrier in in Canada, uh, began flights in 2018. And again, very similar situation here at WestJet announcing that 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 Swoop brand will be shut down as well. Why are they doing that? Look, I think there's a couple of things going on there, Mike. And, you know, you're talking to somebody who was around when Air Canada launched its own low-cost carrier brand. If you'll remember, the two brands we launched when I was around was Tango and Zip. Those are no longer yeah. around and the same for the very, very same reason. You know, um, those brands are, in many cases, experiments by the mainline carrier, that in, in one case, Air Canada, now with Swoop, WestJet. And they're basically testing out the market to see if they can expand Uh, their market reach by these new brands. Now, these brands are also very unpopular with the pilots unions. And so Mm -hmm. as part of the recent negotiations that you and I talked about uh, last month, um, you know, the, the, the pilots unions and management agreed that all of the work rules, all of the separate um, operating rules that were in place because of swoop would disappear and that everybody would be working under the same collective agreement for the WestJet brand. So, You know, these are things that happen throughout uh, the airline industry. It's happening around the world, in fact, where you've got um, sub-brands at places like Singapore Airlines. And um, in the United States, uh, they used to have TED operated by United and Song operated by Delta. Those are all brands that have disappeared throughout um, the years because they no longer served a purpose. And in many cases, they were opposed by the uh, unions representing primarily the pilots. It's very interesting. Speaking to Duncan D, former chief operating officer at Air Canada, talking about some of the big moves in the airline sector and the big one, WestJet announcing shutting down Sunwing Airlines here. What will happen to those Sunwing planes? They'll just they'll just be folded into the WestJet fleet. Yeah, we're talking about 35 uh, jet aircraft that Sunwing operated uh, and uh, those would be um, uh, folded into the WestJet fleet. And one thing listeners might not know, Mike, is that those aircraft already weren't operating in Canada during the summer months. Sunwing was primarily a winter, a fall and winter operation, taking people to sunny destinations from Canada. In the summertime, most of their fleet actually were leased to airlines in Europe, where they were operating European flights uh, on behalf of charters in uh, the European market. So, you know, this is primarily a winter Uh, and fall operation, which is now going to probably result in more aircraft operating in Canada year-round as opposed to less. Okay, well, that sounds like it maybe would be a a good thing for Canadian consumers and travelers, but we are hearing the alarm bells ringing from some consumer advocates. You heard from John Graddick there in the clip we played, McGill University, wondering if flights could be cancelled. Will there be fewer choices for Canadian travelers here as a result of this Sunwing move. What do you think? Is this good or bad for customers? Look, I think it's neither good nor bad for customers because the the the, the concerns being expressed by people like Mr. Graddick and others should have been expressed at the time when um, WestJet was allowed to acquire Sunwing in the first place. You know, that yeah. decision was taken months ago and uh, it, Um, it would be unrealistic to expect the same owner of two different brands, WestJet and Sunwing, to somehow compete against each other. You know, it was never in the cards that Sunwing would continue to exist just to compete with WestJet. That was never, ever going to happen. The one thing the disappearance of the Sunwing brand does is it potentially opens up opportunities for other carriers to look at and expand. We're now seeing Porter, which is finally in Vancouver from Pearson Airport because they've acquired jet aircraft, something which they had not done up until this point. And you've also got the growth of Lynx and um, and Flare, 
which have uh, added new services in the market in the last little while because of changes uh, both by WestJet and Air Canada. So this is part of the free market that we're in uh, in Canada. And hopefully the fact that you've got Sunwing disappearing means that there's an opportunity for other carriers, new carriers, to start in the marketplace or even for carriers like Transat to expand what they were previously offering primarily in Eastern Canada. So, you know, this is, I think, um, part of what happens when a major transaction is allowed to happen, which was the acquisition of uh, Sunwing by WestJet. When you allow that to happen, there are there it becomes a domino effect and, and you know, things just fall into place and uh, consumers have to look very closely at what they're buying. But the one thing I've got to say is that the biggest impact that's uh, uh, affecting the prices that consumers are facing right now is the demand for travel is still extremely high. There was a report yesterday in the United States where the president of Delta Airlines was talking about record-breaking demand this summer for travel. And so that's something that Canadians are um, affected by as well. Okay, what about for holiday travelers? Like I know with Sunwing shutting down, a lot of Canadians would, would choose Sunwing if they're heading to Mexico or some of these other sunny destinations, as as you said. I guess maybe one of the things that could be a little bit reassuring for travelers, we are hearing some of these warnings, oh, could they reduce service? Could there be higher prices as a result of this deal? But as I understand the deal, there there are a series of conditions that have been placed on, on WestJet as part of this uh, approval for this deal. And it include does it include um, continuing some of these vacation packages so people will be able, able to fly to fly WestJet to some of these places on holiday? Absolutely, and that's part mm. of the uh, conditions that the government imposed on the deal that uh, they they greenlit for WestJet when they acquired Sunwing. The what um, so what would happen is um, so the 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 guarantees that have been imposed um, on WestJet would be that they would continue to offer packaged holidays to places like Mexico and the Caribbean and uh, in the case of BC, Hawaii. And, uh, you know, they they would be looking at um, ensuring that those continue regardless of whether the aircraft that uh, people are flying on is painted with a Sunwing logo or a WestJet logo. That will continue. Okay, Duncan, I appreciate your expertise on this today. Thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks so much, Mike. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.